So letter writing is kind of a lost art today, isn't it? I mean, not many people really write letters anymore. I remember when I was a kid, which basically is a way of saying I'm old now, uh, but uh, when I was a kid, that's, that's not my point that I'm old, we all realize that. But I remember growing up that getting a letter from someone was a huge deal. It was a big deal as a kid when you got something in the mailbox that had your name on it. It was addressed to you. Uh, it's not that big of a deal to adults because most of our mail comes in the form of bills and junk mail. Uh, so usually when you get something as an adult, you're like, oh boy, uh, unless it's handwritten. And then you get those like, you know, sneaky real estate agents, you know, who like handwrite the address on the outside and then you open it up thinking it's cool and it's not. Uh, but for a kid, when something arrived addressed to you, it was a big deal. That was huge. And sometimes those letters stay with us. When you got a letter from someone that was important, you hung onto it, you saved it, you put it in a file, you, you kept it on your desk and, and it stayed with you for a long time. But we keep letters that are important to us. We keep letters that, that matter to us. Uh, we hold on to them. Uh, when, when they're from people who are important to us, we hang on to those. We keep letters from loved ones, maybe from the beginning stages of your relationship with the person who would eventually become your spouse. We hang on to those letters and we treasure them. But we keep letters to remind us of something significant that has happened to us or to remind us of something that is about to happen. You know, maybe you get a, a letter in the mail and it's your jury summons and you've got to go show up in court. Well, you keep a hold of that letter because you don't want to forget that one. Uh, so we keep letters for a, ver a various uh, variety of reasons. I asked Scott Fullerton, uh, who's uh, part of our church, and I asked Scott, Scott about it because history is hugely important to Scott. Some of you guys know Scott is really into history and his ancestry, and uh, he's, he, he does historical reenactments of a lot of famous battles, and he's really big into history, and it's important to him, especially when it comes to his family history and their place in it. And so I asked him about old letters, hoping he would have an example of what I'm talking about here this morning, and he didn't disappoint. Uh, Scott told me that his cousin, and much to his dismay, Scott doesn't have this letter, his cousin has it, uh, but his cousin has the original letter that George Washington signed personally to Scott's great-great-great-uncle after the end of the Revolutionary War. And Scott's uncle uh, went on to become a general in the newly founded United States Army, and he's got a letter that's actually signed by George Washington. Now, how cool is that as an example of a letter that's worth holding on to? Uh, and, it, and it probably means as much, if not more, to Scott and his family now than it did to his uncle hundreds of years ago. Just because we recognize the significance and we recognize the importance and the weight of a letter like that signed by the first president of the United States. And now today, as we kind of shift our conversation, we look at the Apostle Paul who wrote most of the New Testament that we read today. Paul is responsible for writing the bulk of the New Testament and he wrote it in the form of letters. Letters to churches, letters to people that Paul cared about. Uh, letters to correct, letters to encourage, letters to teach, letters to train. Uh, and all throughout this series, appropriately called letters, uh, we're going to be looking at some of the most famous passages from these letters or the biblical word epistles uh, that Paul wrote to these churches. And we're going to allow those words to speak to us today just like they did to his original audience thousands of years ago. 
Now, something to keep in mind as we dive into this series, uh, a letter means so much more when you know the person that it came from. It carries more weight when you know the person, you know who they are, when you know their importance, you know their reputation, you know their character, and you know their story. And so today, we're gonna, we're gonna take time this morning and we're gonna remind ourselves who this man Paul was and why we should pay attention to what he had to say. Now, obviously, it's in the pages of scripture for us, so we need to pay attention to it. But who was Paul and why was he significant and why should he be a significant part of our lives today? I wanna read a short autobiography that Paul wrote in one of his letters to the church in Galatia. And this is what he had to say. We're gonna look at Galatians 1, uh, verses 11 through 24. So if you want to turn in your Bibles, Galatians 1, verses 11 through 24. And uh, this is what Paul writes about his story and who he was. Dear brothers and sisters, I want you to understand that the gospel message I preach is not based on mere human reasoning. I received my message from no human source and no one taught me. Instead, I received it by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. You know what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion, how I violently persecuted God's church. I did my best to destroy it. I was far ahead of my fellow Jews in my zeal for the traditions of my ancestors. But even before I was born, God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace. Then it pleased him to reveal his son to me so that I would proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. When this happened, I did not rush out to consult with any human being, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to consult with those who were apostles before I was. Instead, I went away into Arabia, and later I returned to the city of Damascus. Then three years later, I went to Jerusalem to get to know Peter, and I stayed with him for 15 days. The only other apostle I met at that time was James, the Lord's brother. I declare before God that what I am writing to you is not a lie. After that visit, I went north into the provinces of Syria and Cilicia, and still the churches in Christ that are in Judea didn't know me personally. All they knew was that people were saying, the one who used to persecute us is now preaching the very faith he tried to destroy, and they praise God because of me. Now, Christianity at its core is about new stories. You know, that's, that's our tagline for, for Trilogy, and it has been from the beginning. It's time to write a new story. We want to see God write new stories in our lives, in the lives of people who don't yet know Jesus, in us who already know Jesus and need to grow and want to experience more and, and, and deepen our relationship with him. At its core, Christianity is about new stories. It's about conversion. Everything we say and everything we believe is built upon one fundamental and revolutionary premise, and that is this. You don't have to stay the way you are. You don't have to stay the way you are. Your life can be radically, radically changed by God. Conversion is a miracle that happens when the life and power of God intersects with human weakness. Now, once God enters the picture, your life will never be the same again. And you can attest to this. You can, you can testify to the fact that with God in your life, you are not the same person that you were before Jesus saved you. But until that point, you may be religious and you may be a very good person in comparison to some other people and you can even obey all the rules, but you've not yet been converted until you've had a personal encounter with Jesus. Religion is one thing. Conversion is something else entirely. 
Religion is about rules, it's about customs. Conversion is about relationship and it's about life change. And when we experience a new story from the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, prejudices can be overcome, lifetime habits can be broken, and, and deep-rooted patterns of sin can be erased over time. Conversion, here's, here's a great definition. Conversion is the certainty that what you were does not determine what you are, and what you are does not determine what you will be. What you were does not determine what you are, and what you are does not determine what you will be, because the power of God is at work in your life. You can be changed, you can be different, and your life can move in an entirely new direction than what it was headed before. And if you take that truth away from Christianity, if you remove that, it ceases to be something supernatural. If the possibility of real change is gone, then we have nothing to offer people but a set of rules. And where's the fun in that, really? The good, the good thing is God does write new stories in our lives. Conversion is the hope of all humanity, and the Holy Spirit continues to work in us beyond our conversion, beyond that moment, to continue to grow us closer to the image of Jesus. And I'm so thankful for God's power at work in my life. God saved me when I, when I prayed and invited Jesus into my life at the age of four years old. And I was so blessed and, and experienced God's grace at an early, early age. At the age of seven, I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and, and God's power at work in my life. And I've served God faithfully ever since. And I've had times of apathy. I've had times where I didn't pursue God the way I should or pursue his calling in my life the way I should. But God has been working in my life all throughout my life to make me more like Jesus. And, some, and you guys can you know, withhold your amens, but I've still got a long way to go. <laughs> there's, there's a long path ahead of me uh, before I can say that I've been transformed. Uh, I've been changed. But when I stand before Jesus, that's the day when I know that my transformation will be complete. But of all the conversion stories in the Bible, none of them is greater or more profound than the conversion of the man named Saul of Tarsus. Saul was raised as a Jew. Saul was trained as a rabbi. And he became a violent persecutor of the early Christian church. Uh, he hated Jesus and his followers so much that he did his best to eradicate this new religion like, like it was the coronavirus. I mean, he was a terrorist who did evil deeds in the name of the God of the Bible. That's what Paul did. But one day, Saul met Jesus. This person that he was trying to eliminate, this person that he was trying to ruin the name of, one day Saul met him face to face, and his life was changed forever. His reputation was so bad before that, that at first almost no one believed that the change was real. They didn't believe that Saul had really uh, been transformed. They thought it was a trick. But word quickly spread that Saul the persecutor, Saul was Paul's name before he met Jesus. Saul the persecutor had come to Christ. And over time he proved to be genuine in his faith. And what happened to him made such an impact that the New Testament contains three separate tellings of his dramatic life transformation. Three times this story is told in the New Testament. The first is in Acts chapter 9. The second is in Acts 26. 
And the third is the passage that we read earlier in Galatians. And I encourage you to go look in Acts 9 and Acts 26 and read those accounts of Paul's transformation story because there's different things that you're going to pick up from each one. So you might want to do that later on. But Paul's story in Galatians begins with a statement about the source of his gospel preaching. As he, as he carries this message, he wants people to know where it comes from. Because at that time, the, the Judaizers, as they, were know, as they were known, they were self-proclaimed converts uh, who boasted that they spoke for the believers in Jerusalem. They didn't really, but they, they said that they did. They were attacking Paul's apostleship. They were attacking Paul's message. They were trying to take Paul down. Basically, they claimed that Paul's message wasn't true, and he himself could not even be trusted. Which leads us to an important question. They were making all these claims about Paul that weren't true, but what was Paul going to do? And here's the question. How do you prove that you are trustworthy? If somebody says something against your reputation, if somebody says something against your character, how do you change that? How do you make that different? How do you make people accept what you're saying? The answer is you can't. What you can do is you tell your story and let your story speak for, your for itself. You have no more powerful truth than the truth that has happened to you. Your story is the most persuasive and compelling argument that you have with regard to the trustworthiness of the gospel. That is why we are called to be witnesses. We're not supposed to make stuff up. We're not supposed to give our interpretation. All we're called to do is be a witness, which means tell what you've seen. Tell what your experience has been. Tell your story. If somebody asks you about Jesus, your responsibility is to tell them what Jesus has done for you. How is your life different because of Jesus in it? And that's where Paul starts his defense in uh, Galatians 1, verses 11 and 12. And let me recap. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, I want you to understand that the gospel message I preach is not based on mere human reasoning. In other words, he's not just coming up with clever arguments here. I received my message from no human source and no one taught me. Instead, I received it by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. And Paul's story, and that's why I want you to go at some point and read Acts 9 and 26 if you haven't read those before. It tells the story of how Paul met Jesus and it is powerful. These, these verses emphasize two important truths that we need to remember. First, the gospel was not Paul's idea. It was God's idea. It wasn't Paul's idea, it was God's idea. And the second thought is, because the gospel comes from God, it has to be true because God is the source of all truth. And Paul is just a conduit for the truth. He's just sharing what he's experienced. He's not its source. Christianity did not originate from legends or vague stories. It's not some compromise arrived at by some ancient church council. The gospel message is truly good news because it's God's good news. He's the source. It's his story. And it's ours to experience and to share, but it's his story. And God's story needs to be shared. And what's powerful about the church and about you and me is that God's story is shared in the context of our story and what he's done in us. So now that Paul has made that point, Paul continues to his own story. And if you've ever taken a class on how to share your faith, 
Uh, when I was growing up, you know, I've taken several classes on how to share your faith, how to prepare your personal testimony, those types of things. Even when I was in seminary, uh, we had a, a class on evangelism uh, that was taught by a man named Robert Coleman, and he taught us how to prepare our testimony and how we teach others to do that. But it's you're always going to be taught to use this three-point outline. This is kind of the standard format when you're giving your testimony. Point one is your life before Jesus. Point two is how you met Jesus. And point three, what is your life like with Jesus in it? What difference has he made? And that's basically what your story looks like. It's not complicated. Just what was your life before Jesus? How did you meet him? And how is your life different now with Jesus in it? And that's precisely the outline that Paul follows in the text that we read today. And when I wrap up the message later, I'm gonna close with two sentences. And it's a statement and a question. And I'm going to give them to you now, and I want you to think about them while you're listening this morning. And here are, the here's, here are the two sentences. The first statement is this. You cannot understand Christianity without a true moment of conversion. You cannot understand Christianity without a true moment of conversion. And then the question is this. Have you ever been converted? Have you really been converted? And I want you to think about that as we go through the rest of the message this morning. So the first thing Paul does is hit his life before conversion. Galatians 1, 13 and 14. You know what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion, how I violently persecuted God's church. I did my best to destroy it. I was far ahead of my fellow Jews in my zeal for the traditions of my ancestors. And these verses, they tell a pretty chilling story. And it's, it's, it's shared elsewhere what Paul was like and the things that happened. Before Paul came to Christ, he was perfectly happy in his career as a rising Jewish leader, uh, as an avid Christian hater and eradicator. Uh, he felt no remorse over his persecution of the followers of Christ. In fact, he thought he was doing God's work. He considered it his service to God. And, and like a lot of other people throughout history, we've seen this at a lot of moments in history, he used the name of God in, incorrectly to do evil. He, he was doing evil, and he did it in the name of God. He had no desire to believe in Jesus. His religion that he followed satisfied him in every way, and he saw no need for anything else. Was Paul interested in becoming a Christian? Hardly. How many ways can you say no to that question? He wasn't looking for Jesus, but here's the thing. Jesus was looking for him. He wasn't looking for Jesus, but Jesus was looking for him. Some of you all, you have a story that sounds like that, where you weren't looking for Jesus, but man, you, you, you were on a collision course with Jesus and you didn't even know it. And you got an invitation out of the blue or your, your life hit rock bottom and, and somebody shared the, the story of God's love. Something happened and, and you had this radical experience of coming to faith in Jesus. Only God could save a man like Paul. And it turns out that's exactly what God did. Acts 8, 1 through 3 tells us that Saul, which was Paul's name before he met Jesus, went from house to house, and it was kind of in this reverse evangelism uh, format. You know, knock, knock, knock. Are there any Christians here? And if the answer was yes, he dragged them out of their homes and had them put in prison. Um, the only way to describe Paul was that he had a murderous rage in his heart against anyone who claimed to follow Jesus of Nazareth. Why? Because it was taking people away from what Paul thought was the true faith. And so he was trying to protect his religion. Acts 9.1 
tells us this. Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. Eager. Not he did it reluctantly, not he did it because he had to. He was eager to kill the followers of Jesus. He stood and watched approvingly while Stephen, who was the first recorded Christian martyr, was stoned to death. In his mind, the best way to defeat Christianity was to kill all the Christians. That was Paul's mindset. He was a religious fanatic. He was a bigot. He was a zealot. He was a man completely given over to his hatred of Christians. And he would stop at nothing to prevent this new movement from spreading. He wanted it done, and he wanted it done yesterday. So Paul tells his story this way because he wants us to understand that Paul was not exactly something that we would like to call today a seeker, you know? He's not someone looking for answers and trying to discover the truth. He had found his truth and would defend it with his life. He wasn't seeking anything except for more Christians to throw in prison. It's really kind of hard to imagine a more hopeless case uh, for somebody finding Jesus. Why bother praying for a man like that? He'll never be saved. I mean, he was totally convinced he was right. He was totally convinced Christians were wrong. He hated Christianity. He loved Judaism, his religion. He was lost and he didn't know it. He enjoyed his life and he wasn't looking for someone better. How do you reach someone like that? Maybe you know someone in your life who is exactly like this. Maybe it's someone you've tried to reach with the truth about Jesus. Maybe you've shared your story and you've been laughed at or mocked or had it thrown back in your face or just flat out rejected. Maybe it's someone you love and you desperately want them to discover how much God loves them as well. And here's what you need to realize. Paul's conversion is proof to us that there is no heart that is too hard. There is no life too far gone for the Holy Spirit to change the direction of their life. There is no one that falls into that category. We, we can sum it up this way. Paul was on a collision course with eternal judgment. That's where he was headed. And Paul paints the picture pretty dark of who he was. Why? So that the brilliant, bright light of the gospel can be clearly seen. I mean, not everyone has a story like Paul's, but there are plenty who do. There's plenty of people who are that adamant against Jesus. There, there are people in our church, there are people who are part of Trilogy, who if you knew their past, you, you would wish you didn't. Um, if you want to play Name That Sin, we've, we've got winners in every category. And Trilogy is not unique in any sense. I mean, every church of any size could say the same thing. And I think it's a good thing that we don't know the full truth about each other's past, because if we did, some of us might choose to attend another church. That is, until we find out the truth about those people, and the saga would continue. But we don't need to know each other's past. Why? Because God has delivered us from that. It's gone. We are new creations in Christ. And that's the wonder of the gospel, is that those people that we used to be, yeah, there are times where we want to share some of that. We never want to glorify sin. We never want to make it out to be this exciting thing. But at the same time, there are occasions where there's this powerful moment of sharing what God has delivered us from. And there are all sorts of sinners who make up the body of Christ. Christians are not better than lost people. Not one bit. We're all ugly, broken, and desperately in need of a Savior. Every single person on earth. The only thing that makes a Christian different is that we've been forgiven by Jesus. We've been justified by his grace. 
We've been reconciled to God. We've been redeemed, restored, converted, and our lives have been radically changed by the power of God's love for us. And just in case you're not in the habit of doing so, that this is not a regular practice in your faith story, we need to be thanking God every day, every day for changing the course of our lives and separating us from our past. And not only from our past, but I think sometimes more powerfully from what our future would have looked like without Jesus in it. So that's how Paul begins, is by telling us who he was. And then he shares his conversion in verses 15 and 16. But even before I was born, God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace. Then it pleased him to reveal his son to me so that I would proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. And I want you to focus for a moment on the first word there in that verse, but, but this is the great interruption in Paul's life. He was going along fine, but he was going along and he was enjoying, eagerly fulfilling what God had called him to do. But Paul was a sinner, but God. Paul hated Jesus, but God. Paul tried to kill Christians, but God. Paul wanted to destroy the church. Paul didn't even know he was lost. Paul was looking, wasn't looking for a new life. Paul intended to kill more Christians, but God. Even before I was born, God chose me. And I want you to note the change <coughs> excuse me, in subjects here. When Paul talks about his former life, it's always I, 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 I. It's all about him. He was the sinner. He was the one who did all these bad things, evil things. It's all him. But when he talks about his conversion, the focus now shifts. Now it's God who moves into action. Paul doesn't want to claim any responsibility for his life change. He didn't wait to be asked. While Saul was on the road to Damascus, Jesus just barged right in. He intervened. Saul is traveling on the road to Damascus with some companions to basically kill more Christians. And while he's traveling there, Jesus appears to him in a blinding light that literally knocked him off his feet. And he revealed who he was to Saul in a powerful, unavoidable way. Saul didn't ask God for this meeting. If God had waited for an invitation, Paul wouldn't have ever been saved. You know, he was lost just like Lazarus was dead. It's not like Lazarus was sitting around in the tomb saying, I wish someone would come and raise me from the dead. You know, no, he was dead. Jesus came along and raised him without asking permission first. God initiates and we respond. And that's something that we all need to keep in mind. We need to remember that salvation begins with God, not with us. We should never get a, a, a big head or think we have something to do with our salvation. Salvation comes from him. Jesus did the work on the cross. The Holy Spirit does the work of drawing us. It's not us doing something remarkable that earns God's attention. He loves us so much that he steps into our mess. In the middle of our chaos and brokenness, he comes and offers us a way out. And there's another remarkable statement here about Paul. Paul says that God called him before he was born. This means that God was tracking him down from the very beginning of his life. God had his eye on Paul while he was still in the womb. When he was a toddler, God was watching his every step. During his rambunctious teenage years, God kept him in sight. During the long years of his rabbinical training, as he, as he memorized uh, the, the Talmud and, and he, he really you know, applied himself to the teachings, God was calling him to salvation. 
Paul didn't know it, didn't feel it, was totally unaware of it, and in fact couldn't see it at all until he came to Christ. Then he could look back and see God's fingerprints over every part of his life. God overcomes our reluctance, he knocks down all of our excuses, and slowly but surely he draws us to Jesus. We aren't always aware of it, and from our side, we're accepting Christ. We're trusting Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. And sometimes we say, I found Jesus. I found the Lord. And that's definitely true. But just remember that if the Lord didn't find you first, you would have never found him. In the end, God gets all the glory for Paul's salvation, his conversion, his transformation, and he gets all the glory for ours as well. Our part in the entire process is saying yes. That's your part and that's mine. And that is certainly how Paul felt as he looked back on his own amazing, amazing conversion. So that's Paul's transformation moment. But now Paul talks about what his life is like now. What difference Jesus has made in his life in Galatians 1, 16 through 24. When this happened, I did not rush out to consult with any human being, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to consult with those who were apostles before I was. Instead, I went away into Arabia and later I returned to the city of Damascus. Then three years later, I went to Jerusalem to get to know Peter, and I stayed with him for 15 days. The only other apostle I met at that time was James, the Lord's brother, and I declare before God that what I am writing to you is not a lie. After that visit, I went north into the provinces of Syria and Cilicia, and that still the churches in Christ that are in Judea didn't know me personally. All they knew was that people were saying the one who used to persecute us is now preaching the very faith he tried to destroy, and they praise God because of me. I want you to see something because this is so, so unique. Paul's emphasis in these verses is on what he didn't do. Paul is emphasizing what he did not do. He didn't immediately go to Jerusalem to be trained by the apostles. Wouldn't that have made sense? I mean, you have this conversion moment, you come to faith, wouldn't you want to go to where the church is being birthed, to where things are happening, and go there and discover more? But he didn't do that. He didn't start this evangelistic ministry right away. What did he do? He dropped out of sight for three years by going to Arabia. I mean, if this had happened today, this kind of high-profile conversion, we would have put him on Christian radio and TV. I mean, we would have had him write a book and hit the Christian talk show circuit, but that was not God's plan. He spent three years in Arabia, evidently in personal study and meditation, Then he went back to Damascus. Then he made this brief trip to Jerusalem to meet Peter, which is unbelievable because Peter was really probably the most high-profile figure in the early church. And as Paul wanted to eliminate people, Peter was probably enemy number one on Paul's list before. He went north to Syria and Cilicia to preach the gospel. Now, these steps could be easily overlooked and just kind of like, well, these are just you know, these are just periods of Paul's life, moving on. But they show us some amazing insight into Paul's transformation. The first thing we see is this. Paul had a new attitude toward other believers. The Holy Spirit changed Paul's heart towards other believers. He went to Jerusalem to meet Peter. He sought out Peter to get to know him, like just to be friends with the guy. The guy he wanted to kill probably more than anyone else Paul is going to hang out with Peter and get to know the guy. Second thing is Paul was given a new attitude towards the truth. 
In verse 20, he makes sure his readers know that he's not lying. Truth is important to Paul. His integrity matters. He wants them to know who he really is. In fact, more important than anything, he will share the truth. He doesn't care if people like him. He doesn't care if he's even respected. All Paul wants is for people to know that he is authentically sharing the truth that Jesus has given him. And the third thing it shows us is that Paul's given a new attitude toward the gospel. He now preaches what he once tried to destroy. And as we kind of fast forward into Paul's life, he doesn't just preach the, the word here. Paul becomes the first great church planner in the history of the movement of, of the church. And Paul goes out and starts churches all over the known world. And these missionary journeys, he would go in and he would preach and he would establish leaders there and he would drop the church down, then he, they, he would move on. And that's what these letters are that we're going to discover as we read through some of these amazing passages that Paul writes. He's writing letters to these churches that he himself started, to leaders that he himself put in place. And he's bringing correction where they got off course. He's encouraging them where they're down. He's building them up. He's training them and teaching them. And Paul goes on to become really the reason the church exploded from a human perspective. Obviously, the Holy Spirit is the source of the growth of the church. But Paul is the one that the Holy Spirit used to bring that about. Once he hated believers, now he seeks their friendship. Once he hated the truth, now he lives by the truth. Once he hated the gospel, now he preaches the gospel. Once he was called Saul, and now he's called Paul. After he met Jesus, Paul was the same man but a completely new man. Everything was different on the other side. And some of you can relate to this. You're the same person, but you're a completely new person in Christ. Everything is different on the other side of meeting Jesus. I mean, once he was a terrorist and now he's an evangelist. Christ has made all the difference. And the passage ends on this huge high point as Paul says that the churches in Judea, which he once terrorized in his pre-conversion days, recognized the amazing change in his life and they glorified God because of him. Not because of him, but because of who he was now, because of what God had done in him. His life pointed people toward God. What an incredible story, which leads me to a really important question that you need to be asking and I need to be asking all the time. Is anyone glorifying God because of me? Is anyone glorifying God because of me? Is your life pointing people toward God? Who can you point to that has been pointed to God because of your story, because of your conversion, because of your testimony? Jesus died to save you, but he also died to save your friends, your family, your coworkers, your neighbors. Are you showing people what a life looks like that has been changed by God? Enough so that it leads them to experience the same life change that you experience personally. And they end up glorifying God because of you. And as we wrap up this message, I want to focus on three kind of key take-home truths. That, and then next week, we're going to start digging into the letters that this transformed life has written. The first thing, takeaway, is the gospel comes from God, not from man. This is a hugely important point because we live in a pluralistic culture that teaches us that all religions are basically the same. You know, that we're all going to end up in the same place, 
They all lead you in the same direction. It doesn't matter which religion you follow. They're all roads to the same destination. I'm sure you've heard something along those lines. But Paul's words in verses 11 and 12 point us in the right direction. The gospel is not the result of polling data. It's not the work of a committee. It's not like the game Telephone. You know, remember the game telephone where one person whispers something at the beginning and a, a sentence in the ear of another person, then the, they whisper it to the next person, the next person, they repeat what he thought he heard. And it goes on around the circle until the last person repeats what he thought he had heard and it isn't even close to the first statement. Uh, the gospel is not like that. The gospel is not this thing that's been distorted over time. It's based on the historical facts surrounding the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Anyone can check those out at any time. The gospel is true because it comes directly from God. The second takeaway is this. Conversion is a pure miracle that depends on God alone. God takes responsibility for our salvation. He arranges the circumstances so that we can know him personally. And looking back, we can clearly see how the hand of God has been on our lives and graciously and consistently has drawn us closer to himself throughout the course of our lives. Conversion is not a cooperative venture between God and man. It's not something collaborative. Even the ability to believe in Christ is a gift from God that he's given us. Our part begins and ends with the decision to say yes to Jesus. All the glory belongs to him. And the third thing is this, no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. No one is. This has got to be one of the reasons Paul's story shows up three times in the New Testament. Because here's the thing. If God can save a man like Paul, he can save anyone. He can save anyone. Some of you need to hear that today. Some of you, your heart is breaking for someone in your life that means a lot to you. You've been praying for a friend or a family member for so long, and you've not seen any change. You've almost given up. And things maybe even seem to be getting worse. Your prayers seem to bounce off the ceiling and come right back to you. We pray for months and for years with no apparent result. Listen to me today, church. Pay attention to Paul's story. What you're seeing isn't the whole picture. We see just in part. God is working. Your prayers are a part of God working. There's more story that still has to be written. No one would ever have predicted Paul's conversion. I mean, here's the thing. Ten minutes before it happened, it seemed impossible. Five minutes before it happened, no one had any reason to expect anything. Ten seconds before the light broke out and the voice spoke, Paul's heart was as hard as it had ever been. But then God stepped in. God met Paul where he was at and Paul responded and he was never the same again. So please keep praying. Keep on telling your story. Keep on believing because God is working and Paul's story is an example to us today. Since this is Father's Day, let me add this. Dads, your prayers for your kids matter, big time. When God stirs the heart of a father to start praying, you better back off because something's about to happen. Dads, pray for your kids. There are fathers who have prayed their prodigal children into the kingdom one by one. And in addition to that, know that your kids are watching you. They are looking to you. Your story matters. They're watching you to see if your faith 
is genuine, to see if it's real, to see if it makes a difference, to see if you truly have been converted. No one wants to put their trust in a faith that makes no difference. But when they see your life transformed, when they see that you're the real deal, then they'll believe that your faith is the real deal. When they see you passionately following God's plan for your life and for your family, they'll make the same decision you did, the same decision Paul did 2,000 years ago. They'll say yes to Jesus. Jesus is still in the life-changing business. He still saves, he still converts, he still rescues men and women who are lost in sin. I want to share one more verse from 2 Corinthians 5.17 from one of Paul's letters. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. This new life led to Paul writing letters. Letters that would change the landscape of this newly birthed church. Letters which still change lives today. The story of Christianity is the story of twice-born people. It was true of Paul, and it can and needs to be true of you. So let me end with those two sentences I mentioned earlier. You cannot truly understand Christianity without a real, authentic moment of conversion. And then the question, have you ever been converted? Have you ever truly been transformed by the power of Christ? Is your life different because of Jesus being in it? Let's pray. God, we're so grateful for the gospel, for the good news of Jesus, of what you've done and how you've provided a way for us to experience transformation, life change, not superficial, but real at the core of our being, life change that we can become different people. And Jesus, that's, that's why you described it as being born again, because it's, it's almost like a restart. It's a reboot. It's a new life in Jesus. And Paul is a huge example of what this looks like when it, when it just makes, makes a complete 180. And God, I pray that we would learn from Paul. God, not only from his letters that we're going to read over the next few months, but God that we can learn from his life. We could learn from his story. And God, I pray that you would help each one of us to experience true conversion. God, if there's anyone listening to this message and they have never come to you in that way and asked you to change the direction of their life, God, I pray that they would do that right now. That God, they would take a moment right now and they would pray and say, Jesus, I need you in my life. Would you come into my life, forgive me, transform me, and be my Lord and my Savior? And I want to live for you. And God, as they pray that prayer, would you do exactly that? Holy Spirit, transform them from the inside out and put them on a new path, a new story being written in their lives. And God, let their story be evident to everyone around them that they are different because of what you've done. God, for those who are hearing this message today and they've had a faith conversion moment in the past, but God, they've drifted. They've, they've begun living for self. They've gotten off the path that you have for them. God, would you give them a, a moment today where they come back to the foot of the cross and they kneel at the cross and, and they recommit themselves to you. 
And God, for those of us who are, who are living on the path, it's not to say we never make mistakes, but God, we're pursuing you and your plan for our lives. God, would you help us to be effective at telling our story, the story of the change that you've made in us. And as we do, God, would you change people's lives through us, that people would bring glory to you because of me, because of my story, because of what you've done in me. God, we thank you. Be with us today. And uh, God, help us to bring glory and honor to you in everything we do and everything we say. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.